This is Eric Luby, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. I feel like we're losing something very sacred or we're forsaking something very sacred and we don't realize it as the church. We are letting go of our historic roots and in a sense we're being redefined and being bullied around by cultural perceptions and cultural uh, nonsense as opposed to we define the culture of the church, not us, but the spirit of God and the word of God. And we are responders to what God is doing in this world, not to political climates and to social climates. And so it's a very, very unique season in church history. Uh, I think many of us that are in the older side of things would say, in my life, I have never seen anything like this. Over and over again, how many times have we said that? I mean, I've I've repeated, that's one of my kitchen uh, speeches that I've given to Leslie quite a few times. And... But for us, anger, angst, outrage actually does not benefit anything. Those move off the table for us as Christians. It's sort of like be angry and sin not. There's a fleshly version of anger which gets mad at people. It gets mad at ideas as opposed to uh, understanding that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. It's against spiritual powers of another realm. We are engaged in a battle. The world may not recognize it and they may laugh at us makes no difference to us. We're engaged in a battle. And we need to recognize that we have weapons of warfare that are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And we need to know how to wield those weapons now. So this message is a part of an ever-growing series that I really don't ever declare the series, even though it's sort of there lingering. Uh, I've, I didn't want to be held to it, you know, for every Sunday morning, but I sort of have this sense that, uh, especially with where you see the, we're making history right now in America. It's, we're redefining our history. We're sort of recasting uh, everything that America has always stood for. And so it's interesting in light of that, like during the weeks I'm teaching on World War II and spiritual lessons on World War II, and it's incredible. If any of you have listened to that, it's uncanny how profoundly parallel World War II is with what we're going through now. I mean, it's weird. And so I've been going through that, and I'm just sort of progressing through World War II, and everything I get to, it's like, yeah, and there we are too. I guess I could almost anticipate, I mean, pretty soon we get to the dropping of a bomb on Hiroshima. I mean, what, what is the parallel? I don't know. But we are in a, a season of crisis just like World War II. And so to reflect on the Sunday morning messages, to be, begin reflecting on the spiritual biography of our nation. And to begin to break it into its parts of how did God write the story of this country and to recognize that in so showing that and lifting that up, it shows something and it teaches us something that we are losing something. We're forsaking something. We're giving something up. I am a Christian first more than I am an American. I am a Christian and I will not just fight for my American rights. I will fight for God's truth first and foremost and gladly lay down all rights that I have if God asks me for them. 
And so last week I talked about the fact that as Christians, we come to the cross and we give up all rights, capital R rights and lowercase r rights. Lowercase ones are citizenship rights. We give those up when we come to the cross. But that doesn't mean we give them to our governor. We give them to God. And God can wield them any way he wants, just like we see Paul wielding his Roman citizenship for the glory of God. He needed to stand before Caesar. God gave him a commission. So he's going to leverage his Roman citizenship for the glory of God. However, Paul suffered greatly in his body the way a typical Roman citizen would not suffer. In other words, he went through difficulty willfully because he gave up his capital R rights, which is his right to his body, what the American Declaration of Independence would call his inalienable rights. The things that God has given him, he gave back to God and says, God, even my very life, you can take it. Even my very breath, you can have it. This body is no longer my own. It was bought with a price. That's Christianity. So though we as Christians need to be wise about our lowercase r rights, we need to recognize that all of our rights, capital and lowercase, belong to him. And we are his for him to lead us as he uh, would, and we understand that as Christians, we very well and very likely may be asked to lay down our life. We are not scrapping to stay alive. To live as Christ, to die is gain. We need to have a fresh perspective that is global on our circumstances and recognize that we are built for such an hour as this. We are the body of Christ and we have the goods to change the world. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is called the safe house. And I'm gonna get two key ideas out on the table. AWP, question mark, and the safe house. I'm gonna sort of go into both of these because they're gonna be critical in the understanding of American history, but more than that, I'm actually not teaching American history here, even though I am. It is American history, but it's sort of like American history light. If this was an American history class, you guys would be very disappointed on how little you're learning about American history. Even though you are, you're picking it up. I'm actually teaching you about Christianity. I'm teaching you about Jesus Christ. And the fact that our country shadows that at certain levels and parallels that and illustrates certain things, to that degree I'll lift it out. But I'm not worshiping our country. I don't worship the Constitution of the United States as if it's an inspired document. I feel like it is based upon inspired documents. There's a difference there. In other words, the fact that it's inspired by something inspired does not mean it is inspired any more than Leslie's and my 28 books are inspired writings. In other words, they're inspired by something that's inspired. I am moved by the word of God, but that doesn't mean what I write or what I teach is the word of God. What I teach is my best way of handling it, my interpretation of it, but you test everything I say in all my books against something, and that is the text of scripture. We have been given something, and that is the word of God in text, and that word of God came and lived amongst us in person, and his name is Jesus Christ, and that word of God in person bled and died on our behalf. That's in the action of the word of God, and we put our faith in those three things, the word of God in text, in that man, and in that work on the cross. We stake our eternity right there. That is what we rally around as the body. We don't rally around the Constitution of the United States as the body of Christ. But to the degree that it espouses the word of God, we will support it. We will champion it. There is something beautiful in our heritage that is worth fighting for, that is worth standing for, that is worth voting for. And so it's knowing how to balance those two dimensions. First, we're Christians, but we just happen to be Americans with rights. And those rights 
enable us to share the gospel with the nations if we will wield them properly. So at what degree do we protect them? At what degree do we utilize them? That's what last week's message was beginning to hint on. This week's message will sort of build on that, but I have an obscure term like AWP. Now, if you're in my father-son gathering, which there's quite a few of you that are, you'll recognize the AWP question mark uh, that we'll start with, and then we'll get into the safe house. The AWP, the at what point question. At what point do you draw a line in the sand and say no more? At what point do you say, no, I can't go there? Nope, I guess I'm gonna have to civilly disobey right now. At what point, though? I mean, we're not just looking to civilly disobey. As Christians, we are submissive. That's what we do. So we, we respect our government. We trust that God established our government. But there is a point when we must say no. How do we know when that point is? That's an obscure thing, especially because we, as most of it, well, probably most of us in here are Americans. We could have a Canadian in here, but the people streaming this are the ones that will get this via podcast. They're, they're all over the world, right? So each of us has, has to land this, though. At what point do we say, I can't go in that direction anymore? And that's a, a tension that as a pastor, as a leader, as a father, I've had to navigate through because it's not that COVID-19 has been a serious violation in, in a, some huge, obvious way to any of us. But something has happened to the church, and I've watched it. I've watched it over these past months of a passivity or a shift from taking our, he our lead from God and the word of God to government. It's like, what does the government say we can do? It's like, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? What has the government ever had any say in what we do? We're the church of Jesus Christ. <laughs> we serve the king of all kings. What does he say? That should be our question. What is he saying? And yet it's this tension between the two. It's like, well, the, if the governor has something to say in, our, in the state, well, then shouldn't we listen to it? And one of the, the illustrations I was giving this last week is in our neighborhood, we have a homeowners association. And the, I'm under the homeowner. My, my house is part of a neighborhood and it has a covenants agreement. And uh, so the, the president of the homeowners association lives right down the road. She's a very nice lady. But if, the, if, say she wasn't a nice lady and she just suddenly had a bee in her bonnet and she wanted, she felt like she knew what was best for the neighborhood. So it wasn't just external design, which our neighborhood does have a, quite an opinion about what colors you can paint your house, what sort of roof structures you can have. I wanted a metal roof in one spot and one of the guys in the design committee hates metal roofs. So it's like, all right, there goes my metal roof. Uh, and, you know, so they have opinions. Okay, I can respect that because we're all sharing a common area and, you know, they have to drive by my house. Okay, I get that. But if they started coming inside my house and saying, all right, here's what your kids need to eat. This is what we do in our neighborhood. Here's what you watch. You don't watch this. You do watch this. And by the way, you always have to have a purple couch in your living room. That's just part of the tradition of our neighborhood. I would say, now, who are you? Because I recognize you're over the homeowners association, but you're not over what goes on inside of my house. And to distinguish between the two, it does not mean that to a certain degree I'm submitted to that president of the homeowners association and appreciate their work. But their work does not extend inside of the door of my home, into my living room. They do not have voice there. And so as a result, when the church opens up its front door and allows the homeowners association president to come in and begin to dictate how it behaves inside of its own house, that becomes a little sketchy a little dicey. And that's where I feel we are forsaking an obvious position of strength that we've always had as a church in this country 
and we don't even realize it. So the at what point question, how does a Christian know when submitting to governing authorities is no longer the right thing to do and when it is more right to lovingly disobey? We want to do what is right, right? I mean, that's, we're not looking to rebel. We want to do what is right. So what if it is more right to disobey? That's an interesting question. Is there ever a point in time when it is more right to disobey? And some of the parents are wanting to clamp over their kids' ears and say, no, don't listen to this. Is there ever a time when it is more right to disobey? Key question. You know that the Bible actually speaks on this multiple times over. I'm just going to walk through that really quick. I'm going to sort of unpack this idea that historically has been known as civil disobedience. It is a disobedience that is godly. Could there, I mean, is, could disobedience be godly? Isn't that a strange question? Weren't we trained to obey? And what I don't like is we have a rebellious culture out there which is snubbing its nose at government and is snubbing its nose as leaders, at leadership and kids that showed no respect to their teachers, no respect to uh, police officers. So you follow me in saying I don't really want to bring up the topic. At the same time, we need to address it because there is a point where it is correct to submit. It is right and appropriate to humble yourself and say, yes, sir. And there's another point when it actually is correct to say, I can't do that, sir. I'm sorry, sir, but I'm going to need to say no. How do you know where that line is? That line becomes very, very important to us right now as the church. Because we just happen to be in a time period where we are being pressed and we need to know where that line is. If we don't, I have a hunch we will be pushed across it and be unwitting about it. So civil disobedience, it's long and illustrious history. So I'm just going to go through a very quick overview in scripture of this idea and show you that God is not against civil disobedience. Isn't that a fascinating statement? The same God who is going to command us to obey our parents and to submit same God he's not contradictory in other words God understands that there is a line so let's let the word of God explain that to us Jewish midwives disobeying the clear command of Pharaoh Pharaoh civil authority he gives a specific command to the Hebrew midwives to kill the babies when they're born remember this is the threat there's a prophecy of a messianic sort of character that's going to come into the Israelite line and it's it is Moses by the way I mean that that is part of the amazing story of Moses right but these Hebrew midwives are commanded to kill Hebrew babies when they're born at least the male ones right and these Hebrew midwives are going to disobey oh what's God going to say about that the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. I mean, there's your answer right there. God is pleased with the choice of the midwives to disobey civil authority. Okay? And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. So there's one illustration. And it's pretty stark. David eating the showbread. So this is in the New Testament, and the story, I could show it to you in the Old Testament, that would take a bit of time, but David's hungry, and he's going to come, and he's going to find refuge uh, with the high priest, and, and the, there's, they don't have any food, and he's going to eat the forbidden food, the food that is, is not his to eat, I mean, this belongs to God, and so in the New Testament, Jesus is going to reference this. And he, Jesus, said to them, have you not read what Jesus did when he was hungry? Now, Jesus is being maligned at the exact time for doing something that is against the law. 
the perceived law. And so he's actually responding and saying, hey, don't you remember what David did when he was hungry and he and those that were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? I mean, that's Jesus' argument. Didn't you realize? And God was okay with that. It's interesting that Jesus would bring that up. As if Jesus is saying, didn't you recognize that there's a time for disobeying what is perceived as the legal parameters? The boys that refused, to bow, that refused to bow down, remember, their names are actually Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their Hebrew names. But we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then the herald cried aloud, to you it is commanded. Uh-oh, we have a civil command on our hands. A legal dictate that is given. O peoples, nations, and languages that you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall, fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Whew, that's a pretty strict law, okay? Now, I, you know, see the dot, dot, dots in there? That's what I took out where it says when they play the timbrels. It goes on forever of all the little things that are said. So I'm just going to skip all that. They're being requested to bow down and worship a golden image. Now, of course, that seems so obvious to us why we wouldn't do that. Okay, well, that's a dumb idea. However, what I'm wanting to lift up is that it is a civil decree. It is a law. And you are commanded to respect and to submit to your governing authorities. So, if you were to take that same logic, you would say that they should bow down to the golden image. And yet every single one of us knows in here that that would be a bad idea. And so there's obviously a line. Now, this one's a little easier for us to discern <laughs> than some of the lines we may be facing right now. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this, listen to this. This is a fascinating line. To their king, if you want to say it that way. To their, to their leader. To their legal uh, leader. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Isn't that an interesting statement? You know who we serve? We serve Jehovah God. We have no need to answer you of why we're not bowing down. They've been brought before him. Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Bow down. We have no need to answer you in this matter. However, this is a good opportunity to preach. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Daniel praying in front of his window. King Darius signed the written decree. We have a written decree, guys. This is serious stuff. Now when Daniel knew the writing was signed. See, a lot of us could say, well, maybe he didn't know. When he knew, when he knew, it even shows the time, when he knew then, when he knew the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he did that which was illegal. The very thing that was decreed he is going to violate it with an open window. Okay, now, Daniel, just close the window. That would be a lot wiser. However, he is going to, with an open window, knowing full well what has been decreed. He's friends with the king. He is going to defy that law. Why? Well, it's asking him to violate something higher in his soul. And in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath has very strict legal parameters if you want to say it that way. We're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And so the, the Jews are going to 
laboriously put together quite the chronicle of how to keep this law. Jesus is going to come to town and he is going to violate all of their little stipulations. And these are legal. By the way, a good Jew would submit to the priesthood as the governing authorities. They are the executive branch of their government in a, in a certain way. They are the ones that interpret the law. And so as a result, you have a very unique situation here because then Jesus said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? There's a guy with a withered arm in front of him and all the teachers of the law lean in and go, he's not allowed to heal right now. That would be work on the Sabbath, which is such a, a funny, funny logic. And for us, this is again, very clear, but we grew up with these stories. That's why they're clear. In that day, it was not clear. It was just as fuzzy right now in this story as it would be for us now. And Jesus is going to give us a key to unlock all of these riddles right here. Now, I'm going to unpack this a little more. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Okay, now I'm going to build on that one statement because that's going to be our key. If you want to have a key, a key to unlock this great mystery of what is that appropriate point, at what point do we actually deviate away from civil law and submitting to civil law because it is more right to obey a higher law. Peter and John refusing to stop preaching. So the high priest is going to say, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And by the way, a command from the high priest in the Old Testament is something that you obey. And so he's appealing to that. As the high priest, he's saying, look, I have authority over you as a Jew. I have a legal position. I have a spiritual position. And Peter's response and it says, Peter and the other apostles said. So I don't know if it's like one says one word, the other one says the other. I mean, it's like they all said it. They all were in agreement is the way I'm going to interpret that. We ought to obey God rather than men. Oh, oh. I don't know if you guys feel the intensity in, some, in what I'm bringing up here, but this is like serious stuff. The 10, I'm just giving a few other illustrations. The 10 booms uh, in, this is in Holland, and the Nazis have come into Holland, and they, have, they are now the new ruling power, the new authority, and they are declaring that no one can assist the Jews. If you assist the Jews, you lose all of your civil rights, and you will be treated as one of the Jews who had already lost their civil rights. <laughs> and so as a result, the Ten Booms are going to defy the law, and they are going to hide Jews. And of course, many of us in here have been very inspired by those stories, but you need to recognize that was a deliberate decision to defy civil government. So at what point? How did they know to do that? I mean, because I love, I mean, have you ever studied Casper uh, Ten Boom? He's like this old guy with gray hair and a long gray beard, and he's the nicest guy around. And he is going to authorize his home to be utilized for this purpose. It's like, Casper, I thought you were a nice guy. Everyone, even the civil authorities uh, in their little town, love, in, in Harlem, Holland, love Casper Tenboom. He's just such a nice man. He's the watchmaker in town. And he's such a nice guy. He's going to be submissive to government. In a normal sense, he of course would be. This is not a normal sense. This is an overstep, an overreach, an encroachment upon territory that shouldn't be crossed. And as a result, Casper Tenboom is going to respond by saying, Bring him into our house. 
you do know that that's against the law. You do know that if you're caught doing this, you likely will be killed. He did die, by, by the way, because of it. So be it, is his answer. Brother Andrew smuggling Bibles. Uh, actually, the government here says it's illegal. to You can't cross the border and bring that in. He is literally going to defy that because he believes he is serving something higher. Now, this has been I, I, the Chinese house church meeting in secret. There is a legal church in China. Did you know that? It's called the Three Self Church, and it's legal. You can meet. However, to be able to in the Three Self Church is what it's called, the legal church, you have to forsake most of what Christianity is. For instance, as, as a kicker, you cannot lead your children to Christ. If you do, you will lose all rights. So for me, okay, I'm just gonna let you know. Now, I'm not in China, but if I am, I cannot be a part of the three self church, which means my function, the moment I start sharing the gospel with my kids and leading them to Christ is the moment I'm in violation of civil law. Should I just submit? Should I just say, hey, government, you know what's best, and I know you have a role, and that's to help protect order, and that maybe I'm creating a social disorder by doing this. At what point do I stand for something higher? And a thousand more illustrations. This is throughout all of history. I remember uh, Leslie's dad and I were talking, this is before we were married, and he said, uh, you know, I've been pondering it, but I think most of the great men and women in history that we respect spent time in jail or prison. <laughs> and, you know, I was pondering that. It's like, you know, that's fascinating, isn't it? That most of them actually spent time in jail or prison. Now, that would not be a positive statement today. You know, it's like, oh, your pastor was in jail? <laughs> that wouldn't sound very Christian, if, if that makes sense. And yet, what does that state throughout history? That states that throughout history, men and women have been willing to stand against government to stand for God. They're standing for something. What is that something? So Jesus gives us the key in Matthew 12, 12 of how much more value then is a man than a sheep. Therefore, it is lawful, and I put a capital L on that lawful because I want to draw it out. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. It is lawful to do good. So if we're desiring to keep the law, if we're desiring to do what is right, well, we want to keep the law. We want to be lawful. Well, you need to know which law you're serving then. So lawful, and this is a capital L, and you'll notice I also have lawful with a lowercase l. Lawful with a capital L is that which is good done unto God or unto another person. There is a definition throughout scripture of that which is good. And a very simple way of understanding the word good is godly. It's that which God would do if he were in your body. That is what is good. And so if God comes and enters your body, which is what Christianity actually is, we are the habitation of the Holy Spirit, and he takes these hands and makes them his hands, these feet make them his feet, this heart makes it, it, makes it beat with his burdens, these eyes see what he would see, this mouth speaks what he would speak, this body does what he would do. That's good. And there's no one good but God. So if we're going to do good, we need God to do that good. So when God moves in, he has an agenda with this body. What if a law is passed, a lowercase l law is passed, that would ask me not to do that which is good in this body? You following me? 
And that's the key. That's why it is lawful, capital L, lawful, to do that which is good on the Sabbath. So the legal authorities come in and they inspect and they watch and they say, oh, that, that transgresses this man-made law. Mm-hmm. But it fulfills God's law. And that's what this body does. You see, this body is bought and purchased and paid for by the blood of Jesus. I am not my own. I've been bought. I belong to the king of kings, and he wants to do something with this body. He tells me ahead of time, you're like a sheep among a wolves, a whole bunch of wolves. We are in hostile territory, and there will be man-made laws that will attempt to curb the good that is supposed to come out of this life. So capital L, lawful, that which is good done unto God or unto another person, it's God commanded. And then lawful with a lowercase l, that which is allowed to be performed under the boundaries of civil law. So this is lawful. As long as we do it this way, we can, we can do it, is the concept of lawfulness. And so it's, it's a boundary that is created by man. But what if that boundary goes, because in the American constitutional form of government, our boundaries are such that they exist. For instance, I can have freedom to practice Christianity as long as I don't violate other people's liberties, okay? I can't force them to Christianity, for instance. That would be a violation of their liberty because they have their own conscience, their own soul, their own individuality, and I can't force them to be, to be baptized. For instance, I plunge them underwater. That would, be, that would be a violation of law. And yeah, you could call it a, a, a man-made law, but it's also a reasonable one. And so it falls under, bo- under both camps of capital L and lowercase l. And so our government was set up for what's called religious freedom. And so when you see an encroachment upon that, we're just not used to it. We don't even know what to do with it. We're not prepared for it. Other countries live without any of it. We still have it in this country, even though there's an encroachment. That's why we need to know the line. We need to know what the key is. So lowercase l lawful is man commanded. So to do good, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Kalos is our Greek word for to do good, basically. That which is honorable, upright, beautiful, good, excellent, and appropriate. That which gives life, love, truth, and health to another. When you, like say you're a Samaritan or a Jew and they don't get along, right? But the Samaritan is going to see the Jewish man beaten up by robbers, And he is going to define, this is why you see Jesus even sharing these stories. It's like it may be socially inappropriate, but you're going to see the Samaritan, which is going to shock all the Jews in the story. He's going to go out of his way to do that which is good. And of course, Jesus is sort of smacking them in the face by giving the Samaritan as the illustration there, because they wouldn't help a Samaritan. And so the inverse is being implied by Jesus. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's a Samaritan, you should help them. You see, there's a a behavior of God that oftentimes gets curtailed because of cultural understandings. We have cultural understandings today that hinder us from doing good. For instance, you walk into Starbucks and the Spirit of God could say, speak boldly the gospel right now. There's a cultural understanding that says that's inappropriate right now. And as a result, you will pull back from doing that which is good. And so we don't need laws to to prohibit us, most of us have already prohibited ourselves from social correctness. We have allowed something to impinge upon our good 
that we should be doing. So we've already given this up in many regards. That's why I say let's take it back before it's all gone. And let's push to get it all. I don't care if we end up dying on crosses. As far as I'm concerned, that's a far healthier church than one that is silent. So the key, now listen to this. I'm going to see if I I said this well. Because this is hard to know how to articulate in modern American English vernacular. We, Christians, possess both the irrevocable calling and the inalienable right to do good. This is something that God has given us. It's a calling, and it's irrevocable. It doesn't matter if a government official comes in and says, you can no longer do good. Sorry, I have an irrevocable calling from God. It's like uh, James Bond saying, sorry, I'm a British secret agent, and I have the license to kill, right? Now, hopefully it's different than that. But in other words, where you have a higher law that is trumping a lower one. And so we actually have a higher calling than just to submit to something that would ever hinder us from doing good. And it's irrevocable. And we have an inalienable right, capital R right, to do that which is good. And so if anyone ever tries to curb you doing good, whatever that would be, guess what? You know you serve a higher authority. And you see Peter saying that exact thing to the high priest of all people. I need to serve God rather than man. Love, and that's what this is. This is love. It's doing that which is good. In a very simple sense, that's what, that's what we're commanded to. It's the highest, uh, the highest command of all, and it trumps all other commands. You will fulfill the law when you love. So you want to do that which is more right? Love. And so in each situation, love cannot be curtailed by law. I don't care how smart the governor may seem. If we are being curtailed in our love, our ability to function as the body of Christ, something is wrong and a line is being crossed. Love, it is our privilege, it is our duty, it's our commission, it's our responsibility, and it is our greatest joy. This is what we're moved to do. This is what we wake up in the morning to do. We don't wake up in the morning looking to disobey small trivial laws. But we do wake up in the morning with a positive law to love. And when we love, we may step on some man-made laws because we are serving a higher purpose than just attempting to come into alignment with a culture. There's a culture out there and it is not headed towards Christ. We live in it right now. It is no longer just post-Christian. It used to be Christian and then it became nominal Christian and then it became post-Christian, which means after Christian, I think we've begun to tread waters of anti-Christian, where Christians are a threat to the direction of this culture. As a result, we need to recognize that it shouldn't shock us, it should not catch us by surprise when things are happening in governments and in legislatures that are against what we believe. Instead of being shocked by it, we should recognize, yes, that is what happens with the trajectory of our culture. When you forsake God, this is what you get. However, we are not forsaking God as the church. At least we shouldn't. We need to remember our heritage. We need to remember the shed blood of Jesus. We need to remember who our King of kings and Lord of lords is. According to the capital L law of God, we have a capital R right to do that which is good. 
even when the civil laws of our nation may request us to cease and desist. Isn't it interesting if someone were to come and say, you don't have a right to do that. Oh, I do have a right to do it. I have a right to do that which is good. But you need to know where that right comes from because it doesn't stem from men. It comes from God. You guys see the tension here? This has been throughout history, by the way. We're not just inventing this tension now. It's just we have never experienced this tension. The reason the underground church has existed is as a defiance against civil government. That, that's, that's what it is. It is saying we have, an, we have a must, and that's the safe house, which is all of this is to get me to uh, the next portion, which is the safe house. Doing good. Hebrew midwives, preserving life. David and the showbread, sustaining life. The boys and the ref, that refuse to bow down. Sorry about the, the boys, they'll refuse. The boys that refuse to bow down, maintaining integrity. This is part of doing good. Daniel in, in prayer, honoring and proclaiming God. Jesus healing on the Sabbath, giving life. Peter and John refusing to stop preaching, giving Jesus. These are things that we do as the church. If someone says you can't give Jesus, we say, sorry, I, I'm functioning after a higher authority on this one. I have a right to give Jesus. I don't care if I don't have a lowercase r right. I have a capital R right from the throne room of heaven given to me. The king himself has commissioned me to give Jesus. You follow me? We need to know what our king has asked of us. And as a result, that helps us understand this line. But what if the current civil law kindly requests, I added the word kindly as an adverb in there, because it could be very kindly that we're requested. Jared Polis, I have to admit, Governor Jared Polis here in Colorado has been very kind in his voice, in his attitude uh, towards things. He's, he's been civil uh, as a leader of civil government. So what if the current civil law kindly requests us to stop doing good for a season? There is no season that the church takes off and takes a vacation. There is no time that we do not do good. And so it really doesn't, I mean, COVID-19 is our opportunity to do good. People dying all over the place, which is why, well, supposedly, there, there's, there's this idea that we are supposed to hibernate and quarantine lest we do harm. Think about this. So as a result, if you start to do good, you are considered the evildoer because now you are transferring death so as a result, we as a church were caught off guard by this. We don't know how to respond. So we're quarantined like everyone else. When in fact, there's people out there scared to death. More people are probably, probably dying from heart attacks than COVID-19. And yet what they need is the church. They need truth right now. And yet we are quarantined. In every other plague in history, the church has boldly entered into it until this one. We don't know what to do. We're caught off guard. We're uneven in our balance. We can't see straight. We're in a fog bank, which is why we need truth to turn on the light in the midst of our fog so that we can see. The Underground Railroad, when doing good is illegal. My kids really like the Underground Railroad. This is dedicated to the Ludi kids, uh, and the rest of you can listen in. This is really good. So the Underground Railroad... I. I think it probably would be good for you guys to know it actually wasn't a railroad and it wasn't underground. Uh, but it's a, it's a term, and I'm guessing most of us know what it is, but uh, in the South when uh, the abuses of slavery were taking place, there was an escape pattern because the northern states would actually grant asylum for a period of time to escaping slaves. 
And so there was a network uh, of safe houses that were given along the way to create an avenue of escape. And it's actually a profound picture of the church. It really is. And here's what's funny. Those safe houses were illegal. There was a Fugitive Slave Act that was passed which forced anyone that came in contact with a runaway slave to return them to their master. And these safe houses didn't just defy that. They, hint, they helped the slaves escape to freedom, to get away from those slave masters. Ouch! That is some serious civil disobedience, guys. And, I mean, there, there's a lot of Christians in the South. And, I mean, how, what, how can you reason through this? This is a very fascinating study. And I'm not going to go into the study on the Quakers, which were the main group of the Christians that actually took it upon themselves to say, I don't care if the rest of the church turns a blind eye to this. We must stand up and do something for these slaves. Now, of course, what's funny is their civil disobedience is applauded now. That's what I'll even show you. It's applauded now. Their civil, isn't that an ironic thing? Even by our national government, it's applauded. The same ones that said that they were illegal. So when doing good is illegal, now that's an underground railroad. I think we need to start an underground railroad. Leslie grew up always wanting to be a part of the underground railroad. Now, I think we can. Introducing the Quakers, they were known as the Friends. That's actually what you'll see them referred to, not oftentimes as Quakers. Quaker has always been sort of like Puritans. It's a phrase sort of like, what are you, a Quaker? And that is like a put down saying, what are you, one of those religious nuts that is all like religious and has all your like entrapments and you know, paraphernalia that you wear and you're weird and you don't do anything, like you never date and get married and things like that and you just sort of live single for the rest of your life. That, what are you, a Quaker? That's a famous phrase throughout American history. They're mocked. Get used to it, Christians. They're friends of the slaves. Now, I, instead of typing this in, sorry guys that I'm giving you an Ohio, uh, uh, what, what do you call this, uh, historical monument. So it was a Quaker meeting house, and this is what it says on the outside. Despite the fugitive slave laws that prohibited harboring runaway slaves, fugitives found refuge in the Quaker village of Chesterfield, now Chester Hill. Legend tells that no runaway slaves were ever captured here, although many were hidden and helped on their way to freedom in Canada. A well-organized branch of the Underground Railroad ran through Morgan County with Elias Bundy as a principal conductor. Bundy sometimes concealed fugitive slaves in the woods east of Chester Hill. Historian W.H. Siebert says Bundy, Jesse Hyatt, Nathan Morris, Abel W. By, Joseph Doudna, Arnold Patterson, and Thomas Smith belonged to the inner circle of old and reliable friends, or Quakers, upon whom dependence could always be placed. The first monthly meeting was held on October 21st, 1834, at the location of the present meeting house, which was built in 1839. I would like the kingdom of heaven to look fondly back on us in the same way. I mean, there is a statement in there that I don't know, you heard me emphasize it. These were part of the inner circle of old and reliable friends upon whom dependence could always be placed. I really like, I think one of the things that attracts many of us to the Underground Railroad is the idea of reliability, that these people would lay down their life and even in the middle of the night they would be woken up and they would happily serve and take them in, risking their own lives in the process. I mean, this is in America, guys. When America's laws were actually 
forcing people to do to to not do good. This is our part of our history, part of our spiritual biography. And yet what you see is the friends or the Quakers as we have revivals and we have awakenings, those that stand and do right even when the world or even the laws tell you not to, are the ones that ultimately come out smelling like a rose. You see, the church in the end, those that stand with Christ, they come out smelling like a rose. Those that compromise, those that actually turn back over the slaves, say, I don't want to have anything to do with all these politics, actually are doing evil. They are silent when they should be speaking. They are sitting when they should be standing. They are not participating in the work of good. We have a job to do, Christians, and that is to do good. And it is lawful, capital L, lawful, to do that which is good. Harriet Tubman's statement on the Quakers. Quakers, I can't really do a good southern uh, black accent here, but Quakers almost as good as colored. They call themselves friends, and you can trust them every time. You see, those that were of the same race especially the blacks, the African-Americans, they trusted each other because they were in this together. It's a pretty high statement for someone who was so threatened by white people to say, you can trust the friends. The friends, almost as good as colored. <laughs> That's a great statement. Could you imagine if the LGBTQ community could say that about this band here? In other words, yeah, you know, they, they're different skin than us, but you can at least trust them. You know they're going to shoot straight with you. You know that they love you. You see, I'm not a welcoming church sort of guy who says, hey, let's, let's, let's look past the sin and let's just love everyone and allow them to come into the body of Christ. I'd say, no, we still have the truth of Jesus Christ and we can't violate it. None of us can. We're all held to the same accountability. But at the same time, we all love. It doesn't matter if they believe in Jesus or not. We are lovers of the people Jesus Christ died for. And therefore, I think everyone out there Friend and foe should be able to say a similar thing about us as the church of Jesus Christ. So listen to this. This is, I know, another cheater's way of me just taking a picture of something and reading it to you. This is about the Underground Railroad, which is really fascinating. The Underground Railroad was neither underground nor a railroad, but a system of loosely connected safe havens where those escaping the brutal conditions of slavery were sheltered, fed, clothed, nursed, concealed, disguised, and instructed during their journey to freedom. Stop. Did I just read about the church or did I read about the Underground Railroad? You see, the safe house. These were called safe havens, which maybe is a better, better name uh, because safe house has a negative connotation, but I like it. We are a house of God. The church is, and so this is a profound picture. Although this movement was one of America's greatest social, moral, and humanitarian endeavors, the details about it were often cloaked in secrecy to protect those involved from the retribution of civil law and slave catchers. Ohio's history has been permanently shaped by the thousands of runaway slaves passing through or finding permanent residence in this state. It's interesting, if you know Christian history, I could just as easily be reading about the underground church in a, in a, in a, in a different country. This is how the church has always functioned. It does good. Even when the laws are against it, it is willing to create a safe house, a safe haven. So Harriet Tubman, I grew up like a neglected weed, ignorant of liberty, having no experience of it. What does Harriet Tubman need? 
She needs the church of Jesus Christ. She needs someone who's going to look at her situation and care. And ironically, if you're the church in the South, which there was a huge presence of Christianity in the South. I mean, it's a very religious, it's still part of the Bible Belt, right? Huge presence. Everyone knows the scripture. How come no one was willing to do that which was good? Now, I'm not going to say no one, but it's a small minority that were willing to risk public shame, public ridicule, risk losing everything, being imprisoned to do that which is good. Our history, guys, this is our country. Those that have gone before us, we know who made the right decisions in this. The question is, who's going to make the right decisions now? The Underground Railroad, those willing to break the, the man law in order to fight for the God law. Listen to uh, one of the scriptures that they would oftentimes put, the Quakers would put on their documents. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. <laughs> Isn't that just interesting? That that's even in the scripture? It's under miscellaneous laws. Sort of like God throws it in at the end. If there is a, a, a fleeing slave and they come to find refuge with you, don't return them. In other words, there's probably a reason why they're running to you. And give them shelter. I mean, what if the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, which forces you to violate Deuteronomy 23.15? Can't do it. Can't do it. I'm not sending them back. Sending them to Canada. The safe house, where doing good is done often and always. So there's an unsavory definition of a safe house. And so if I say a safe house, and you think of one of those action-adventure spy movies or whatever, a safe house is a place where bad guys like hang out. So we're going to need to overwrite that one, okay? That, that's not what I'm referring to here. So a safe house, a house in a secret location used by spies or criminals in hiding. All right, and no, no, that's not what I'm referring to, okay? Just in case someone takes this as like, Eric's talking about building a safe house. What's he trying to hide? So if you look at 1860s, the Underground Railroad definition, was a, a safe house was a place of safety for those being hounded by pursuing bloodhounds. In other words, I mean, bloodhounds, they, they find their their target. And these, these dogs are good. And you're being pursued by bloodhounds and that person's coming to your house? You're like, yep, they can come in here. This is a dangerous business. How about the 2020 Eric Ludy definition of a safe house? A place of truth in the midst of lies. Someone, I mean, this world out there needs to find truth. I, I don't know how you would describe the modern media disinformation campaign that is trying to spike everyone's emotions. Are they trying to create a civil war? I mean, you can maybe answer that as a, rhetor you know, as a rhetorical question, right? I, I mean, this is crazy. Where's truth? Have you felt that even during COVID-19 in the first few months? It's like, is this thing dangerous? Is it a joke? Is it real? Did it start in Wuhan? I mean, where, I don't know anything. I can't, even to this day, I can't tell you how it's passed from one person to the next. I can't tell you if the, ac if the data that we're getting on who's died from this is really accurate because the flu and the pneumonia deaths have plummeted in the past few months as if they don't even exist. And, as, and even the world death toll is the same as last year, which means What's actually happened, okay? You can understand where conspiracy theorists come out of the woodwork in things like this. I don't know. I can't answer that, but I can give you truth. I can tell you God's word. I can tell you how he thinks. And in the midst of fog, we have a beacon light. It's a safe house. People should be able to come to the church right now and be able to hear that truth. A place of comfort in the midst of panic. And we've been shut down do you see why Eric is getting a bee in his bonnet over this? 
We're supposed to be a safe house doing that which is good right now. A place of soul rest in the midst of soul storm. A place of light in the midst of darkness. That is the church, guys. We are a safe house. That is what God defines us as. And we have a capital R right to do what we do. A safe house. Jesus. He's a safe house. Study the gospel. We find refuge in him. He is truth in the midst of lies. He is calm amidst the storm. You believe in Jesus and you enter into the safe house. It's the gospel. The body of Christ. Well, you enter into that body known as Jesus. But then we become the body. And we then create a rallying place for people to enter into our midst and feel safe and secure. That's an amazing statement. This is, that's why to study the, friend, or the Quaker, Quakers in the South during this time is really interesting because this is how they function. They functioned as the church for those that were fleeing darkness. I mean, it's, it's a profound mental picture in our spiritual heritage. So the church is a safe house. And then how about this? You and me. We're supposed to be a safe house. People should be able to run to us and hear truth. They should be able to run to us and we shine light into their soul. They should be able to run to us and we'll supply them whatever they need. They need resource, they need clothes, they need food, whatever it is. They should be able to find us as the safe house. Someone should be able to whisper to them, okay, you want to go along the, the creek here and then you're going to turn left at the big oak and then you're going to run into this Christian here and that Christian will give you everything you need. How do you know? Because they're a Christian. What happened to that? Everyone's hoarding their own toilet paper. Instead of being Christians, the church is actually built for such a time as this. So King David says, deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. In you I take shelter. That's Jesus right there. That's the church. This is our function to do good in the midst of enemies. The world should be able to come to us and find refuge. So we call it the focus on the family snafu, a safe house that wasn't. This is more just a humorous story. Why I'm sharing it, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, remember Y2K, uh, which is sort of a funny thing to look back on. I have a hunch that's the way we're going to look back on COVID-19 too. But, you know, that's a separate uh, line of thought. But uh, Y2K, no one knew what was going to happen. When that date changed and it went from 99 to 00, everything could shut down in the entire world. I mean, if you guys were alive during that time, I mean, it's really humorous to look back on it uh, because no one knew. I mean, we, just like COVID-19, no one knows actually what's really going on. I don't even know if the governing officials have any clue what they're swept up in. And uh, I mean, it just seems like we're being carried along by something, and this is where the Illuminati comes in. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, there's a mastermind behind it. Yeah, and it could be God. It could be Satan. I mean, we don't know what's going on. We do know God's over all of it, right? But what is this? We don't know. Well, Y2K falls into a similar uh, pattern. And in that time, I could have sworn that I read that focus on the family, because we're in Colorado, and January 31st into February, or December 31st into January 1st, it could be cold, right? And so if all power goes out, focus on the family was going to open their campus up to refugees, people that had no power, no food, and they were going to stockpile food, they were going to have all this, and they were going to keep everyone warm because they were going to have multiple generators. Where, how did I get that? Okay, I have no idea. So I was on a focus broadcast, and I said that. 
And I said, guys, I just want you to know that one of the best pictures I've ever seen of functional Christianity is what you guys did uh, going into Y2K and how you prepared for the city of Colorado Springs to literally find refuge at your facility. And the guy's like, hmm, looking at me. <laughs> and then they had to come back. They had to correct it all. I mean, they had to get honest. And say, well, actually, we didn't do this. They told me, well, I don't know where you got this. I'm like, well, I, yeah, I, I heard it. I knew you guys were doing this. I read about it. I don't know. I can't tell you how I heard it. And yet, it was, it was interesting because the snafu is that it had to be corrected. They actually didn't do that. And they're thinking, maybe we should have. <laughs> but think about this. What was I impressed with? I was impressed with a ministry function as the body of Christ. That's the way we should all be thinking. We should be a safe house saying, hey, if any of you out there need something now, you know where to come. Now, of course, many churches function that way. I'm not gonna try and decry this and say, oh, Eric's inventing something. This world has never thought it before. This is the way the church has always been. So COVID-19 can't change that. We boldly move forward with our capital R rights to do that which is good right now. America was originally set up as a safe house. That's the other ironic twist. That's what we were. People fled to our country to escape persecution elsewhere so that they could find freedom. They could find the ability to seek after God and find truth here. Isn't that just an incredible thought that we were set up as a safe house? The loss of safety. You shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. We have something, well, there's something, in, if you look at it governmentally, you would call the Hebrew government a Hebrew republic. It's actually a term that you could use for governmentally. That's how you would understand it, especially now that we have used that term as America. Where did America get its constitutional republic? From the Old Testament law. It's delegates, you know, you will assign uh, men over thousands, men over hundreds, men over tens. It's delegated government, it's representative government. Everything about this was actually based on a Hebrew model. That's why it has shadows of the kingdom of heaven in America in the way we were founded. Part of it involves this idea of a safe house. That's what's interesting. The safe house is always protected, is a sacred dimension of the culture. So think about it this way. We don't function with this exact idea of safe houses or cities of refuge in America. But what we do have is we have places called the church that cannot be stopped, cannot be closed down. These are places that people that are in darkness or that are sinners can run to and find help and life. Our system of American government was set up on this same mentality. America was designed based on this premise that a God-honoring government would always seek to protect these spiritual safe places for sinners. No matter, oh, so Eric's gonna get on, this is a little bee in the bonnet uh, time, guys. I'm just gonna hit some things really hard as we close. I have like four slides left. No matter what is happening in the world, no matter the current threats, no matter the present dangers, no matter the laws that may prohibit, no, and no matter the gross obstacles that stand in the way, the church has an assignment. We possess both the irrevocable calling and the inalienable right to do good. Okay, this might sound a little extreme at first to those that don't think these thoughts, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Jesus Christ is the most needed thing in the world today. The word that government is using is essential. And I'm going to take that word essential and I'm going to put a capital E on it 
And I'm going to say, that's what we do. So I don't care if the governments of this world declare the church to be non-essential business. God declares it to be capital E essential as, in fact, the most important operation on earth today. Christians, wake up and remember your heritage. Remember your job description. Capital J, capital D job description. We serve the King of Kings and his rights and calling have never altered during all of this nonsense. We must awaken to our task and fulfill it. Jesus Christ is the most needed thing in the world today, more than food, more than shelter, more than any other essential business. Whoo! Yeah, I just let that fly. That's sort of like the equivalent of saying Jesus is the only way to the Father. It's like, are you allowed to say that? That's like politically incorrect, but it's truth. And truth is what we need right now. Lies or fuzzy truth doesn't actually help anyone. We need truth, clearly spoken right now. And the church is his chosen delivery vehicle. That means that the church is not just essential, it is essential with a capital E. So I am a firm believer. I, it, I, I can't say that I, I didn't walk through a fog bank on this, okay? I could give this message and you guys could think, boy, Eric has seen so clearly through this COVID-19 thing. No, I'll be the first one to say this, was, this has been extremely difficult as a leader to navigate through. It's like, I remember the first conversation, Philip was in it, we were talking as pastors, and we're like, okay, we're going to obey this lockdown, and we're not going to meet this Sunday for church. I've never heard of anything like this in history. Quarantines typically take the people that are infected and quarantine them. You don't quarantine the society from the people that are infected. This is weird. I've never heard of anything like this. It sounds dangerously close to a violation of the First Amendment. And yet, we all decided as pastors to do that because we didn't know what we were dealing with. It was like, let's show respect to the culture. Let's say, if, if we are all our carriers and it's this contagious, we didn't know if it was a bubonic plague, right? We had no idea when this thing first started. What are we supposed to do? And I don't know that I would do it different if we were to walk through it, okay? So in other words, but at what point do you say, actually, we are being prohibited from doing good now? In the beginning, it actually might have been doing good to not meet. But at what point does it cross that line? And I feel like, because I'm watching the trajectory of the church, that we are languishing as the body of Christ right now. That's not doing what we're supposed to do. We are not evangelizing. We are not going after souls. We have masks on, and we're six feet away from people. It's very difficult to communicate the clarity of the gospel in such an hour. We feel awkward. Every time you walk into a store, you're more conscientious to your mask than you are to the soul. That's a weird phenomenon. I'm, known, I'm getting pulling up to Starbucks yesterday and I'm in Larimer County, so I have to wear a mask to get my drink from the drive-thru. I mean, I, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And so instead of talking to him about his soul, I'm like, oh, sorry, I don't have my mask on. We're distracted, we're off balance. We're the church. Let's get our balance and start taking this world by storm. The church, we are called to do good in the power found in the name of the King of all kings, Jesus Christ. And any lowercase l law that seeks to restrain us from doing this good is a law that we will respectfully and lovingly disobey. Father, we are your church, we are your people, and we need you right now. We need your Holy Spirit to enable us, to ennoble us, to empower us 
to do what we are called to do. Lord, for so many years we have forsaken the doing of good because we've been silenced by a culture of ever-increasing social correctness. But Lord, we are your people and that has not changed and you still have a calling for us. And may we shed these weights that have beset us. May we throw them off and run the race that has been assigned us. There is a great cloud of witnesses that is watching. Men and women that have gone before us that have done this far better than we have. And Lord, may we catch that inspiration afresh. And may we be empowered by your Holy Spirit to act, to do. Give us wisdom of what it would look like and what it should look like moving forward. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we ask this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.